listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo Christian thought. I'm Brendan, here with Skylar. And uh, yeah, we're, we're chopping up another one for you all today. A tough one. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it is a tough one, depending on what way we go with it. But they're, right. all, they're all tough in, in one sense. It's true. So... But I enjoy it nonetheless. Oh, yeah. So, uh, random question time? Yes. Should, should we do it? Let's do it. That, uh, is that a thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the question today is, uh, what is the worst movie that you've ever seen? The worst movie. The ever. Hobbit movie. Oh, I, yeah. I didn't even look, see all three. Yeah. That was the worst movie. Yeah. Yeah. What what did you dislike about it so much? It just it wasn't the book. Yeah, it wasn't at all. Yeah, didn't even seem like a noble attempt. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, oh, you know, Peter Jackson, it'll be like mm-hmm. first three, which were definitely more Braveheart than Lord of the Rings. But I like Braveheart, so I liked those <laughs> movies. <laughs> you know, those ones worked. Yeah, I you know, good enough. It was it was good. You know. Um, of course, any fan of the books will have their issues with the movies, but yeah, but I enjoyed them yeah mightily, yeah. and I yeah I didn't even go and see the other two. It's yeah. just so bad. Mm-hmm. What about you, man? You know, it's a hard question for me to answer because I have a terrible movie memory. I just I watch <laughs> movies and then I forget about them because yeah, I just. I, I don't know. We're similar in that just, way. I, I, I haven't bet, seen very many movies. Out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but man, the worst movie I've ever seen. I I don't even know. I mean, the first the first thing that comes to mind is kind of sad that this is what comes to mind. But <laughs> what is it? I remember being in uh, being in youth group. It uh, in my church and going to a theater and watching it was like during Christmas time watching a like a movie that was a about the birth of Jesus and uh, I, I I don't remember much of the movie itself to be honest but it was so bad and I was so dumb that my friends and I were just like cracking up the whole time during it <laughs> and. Uh, we uh, <laughs> wait. We got yelled at, yeah, uh, quite vigorously by a uh, uh, older couple that was sitting right in front of us. They thought that we were being very disrespectful, and, and we were. I mean, let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. Um, probably another one I remember watching in high school was a uh, High School Musical, and I, I went to that movie with a group of like ten friends, and I, I was a senior in high school, I think, when that came out or something like that, and. Yeah. Uh, and we we just acted ridiculous, like we acted like it was the most amazing movie ever. And, was that filmed but, here? But we were just being ridiculous. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was filmed at the high school my parents went to. Oh, really? Yeah. There you go. I've never been there myself. But. Yep. Yep. So, I don't know. Probably either of those. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a lot of bad movies, so it's hard to. Yeah, hard to say. There's been movies I can't even remember watching that I turned off after like ten, fifteen minutes because like, yeah, this is no good. So, anyway, well, we got a lot to cover, and we not uh, we're going to try to stick to 
the uh, one hour time limit today as much on the spot as we can. So let's let's just get straight into it. We're going to be looking yeah. today at Acts 10 to 15. And the subtitle of the whole lesson is The Word of God Grew and Multiplied. And so we'll, we'll get into all that. But you've got a creed for us over there that I'm going to go ahead and have you read before we jump into all this explanation. Just I so love we can try this to one. Stick to that. But yeah, go ahead. This one comes from the early 2nd century, uh, from an apologist named Aristides. Very underrated. Wish we had more of what he wrote. But this is about 125 AD. Keep in mind, Nicaea is at 325 AD. Um, and this is apology written to Emperor Hadrian. The Christians then trace the beginning of their religion from Jesus the Messiah, and he is named the Son of God Most High. And it is said that God came down from heaven. Notice that he's the Son of God Most High. And it is said that God came down from heaven. And from a Hebrew virgin assumed and clothed himself with flesh. And the Son of God lived in a daughter of man. This is taught in the gospel, as it is called, which a short time was preached among them. And you also, if you will read therein, may perceive the power which belongs to it you'll read. Interesting. This Jesus then was born of the race of the Hebrews, and he had 12 disciples in order that the purpose of his incarnation might in time be accomplished. But he himself was pierced by the Jews, and he died and was buried, and they say that after three days he rose and ascended to heaven. Boom. How about that? Thank you. Aristides. Yeah. That's what it was. Aristides of Athens. Yep. Lovely, lovely. Good stuff. All right, let's jump on in here. Um, yeah, the subtitle is The Word of God Grew and Multiplied. And I, I just made a note there underlining the Word of God. What is this? Yes. <laughs> in an LDS conception. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, we continue to touch on this. But it, this is going to be one of the primary themes in just about every episode because – what we're showing is how front and center some of these ideas are in the life and practice of the LDS faith um, is how they discern the word of God, how they uh, receive truth according to their conception of truth, whatever that is. And uh, we'll get into actually a lot of that today. Um, fundamentally, what we're going to be talking about is how they use some of these scriptures to try to deal with uh, some of the issues that they have as a church of the the changing uh, standards and and uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll we'll get into that. But um, uh, uh, at the very top, at the subsection, they again say prayerfully studying Acts ten to fifteen before reading this outline will help you receive impressions from the Lord. And this is key. We pointed this kind of thing out over and over again, but. They say next, the ideas below are only suggestions. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, again, it, we, we continue to highlight this, but from an LDS perspective, knowledge comes through these subjective impressions. It doesn't come through objective truth that can be taught. And so they focus typically less on what is true and how is that rightly communicated and rightly taught 
and more on what are the subjective things that you were receiving mm-hmm. that you could use. And it's interesting because even in the teaching, and we've ta- talked about this, but the teacher isn't really supposed to come into the class and say, thus saith the Lord. Mm-mm. He's supposed to come in and invite sharing and facilitate discussion. And everyone's supposed to kind of have an opportunity to share their own insights with the class. And so it, you can just see the epistemology of LDSism popping through every lesson, which is that subjectivism, that truth is really centered in you and in your own personal experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know what is true on the basis of the things that you're experiencing that are within you mm-hmm. and not on the basis of what can objectively be known. And so we, again, have talked about this. We wouldn't deny that there are subjective elements to the religious experience. Um, even the, uh, the Holy Spirit applying the truth of God's word to our lives, we would say is a subjective experience, but it's a subjective experience that is enabling us to understand objective truths that we simply didn't see or discern that were there before. Right. The creeds are an example, too, of this is what our objective claim is, upon which we have subjective commitment and trust. Yeah. The, the one just, I thought your point was fantastic. I hope the listener didn't miss it. If I may try to put it in a different way, one thing I've noticed about this emphasis on impressions, notice it says impressions from the Lord. Mm-hmm. Like it's not impressions you feel are from the Lord. Yeah. So they want the authority of God and yet none of the responsibility associated with what they teach. In other words, they want the, what, aura of authority and yeah. none of the accountability that should come with truth claims. Yep. Does that make sense? Yeah. And this is, by the way, um, what we would call a modern view of Revelation. This is not Mm -hmm. a historic view of Revelation. This is not the sort of thing that uh, people who were writing the creeds would have been uh, grappling with. But uh, I'll just, since we're there, I'll just make one more quick note. I'm going to read a little bit from John Frame because it was given just a bit more thought. And we're probably going to need to do a whole episode at some point on LDS epistemology. Um, I just I want to try to synthesize some of the way that they work through some of this, but I do think that they are right on par with some of the things that John Frame, who's an excellent author, he wrote this in a book called The Doctrine of the Word of God. He's also written a whole volume on the doctrine of the knowledge of God. So if you ever have questions about epistemology, he's a great place to go to. And of course, if you're a listener, who's like, what in the world is epistemology? Epistemology is simply how we know what we know. How do we how do we come to a place of knowledge. Where does knowledge come from? Um, And so he writes this. He says, Another approach to revelation in liberal theology has been to identify it with a subjective event, something that takes place within the human heart. Uh, So revelation in this way of liberal thinking is not something that is an objective event as much as it's a subjective event, an experience that you have within the human heart. Heart, And he says this view was most often associated with a German man, Schleiermacher. And uh, he says to him, to Schleiermacher, religion was based not on reason, but on feeling or intuition. 
Religion begins, he thought, with a feeling of absolute dependence, and God is, in the first instance, a name for that reality we feel dependent upon. The Christian faith interprets that reality in terms of Jesus Christ, so Christian theology expresses the Christian religious affections in the form of speech. The feeling is first, the words of Scripture and theology, a secondary expression of and a reflection on that feeling. So, for Schleiermacher, Revelation is not the deliverances of reason as such, or the history presented in Scripture, but the feeling of God, the religious consciousness that interprets the biblical history. Revelation is primarily subjective, not objective. It is not objective truths, but our subjective responses to them. And uh it's just that's what we see represented oh, in LDS absolutely. thinking absolutely. over and over again. It's it's a view that uh, what matters most is what what your subjective experience of the Bible is, and not what the Bible is actually saying. Right. Absolutely. And I'm I'm so glad you said the name Schleier Marker. Marker. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm surprised his name hasn't come up yet. Yeah. But this is another example. Notice, relative to creedal Christianity, he's so far left that we question his Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. And yet that describes what a believing or relative to a Mormon center, conservative LDS view of the religious experience and truth claims. Yeah. Can I see that? <laughs> yep. Yeah, so it just shortly, um, Frame goes on to clarify the distinctions here. He says, in a Reformed understanding, which would be our understanding, there is both objective and subjective revelation. God reveals himself in creation and in Scripture objectively, but that objective revelation is of no use unless the Holy Spirit illumines our hearts and minds. As sinners, we suppress God's revelation. It is the gracious regenerating of the work of the Spirit that enables us to understand, believe, and obey. So the re- on the Reformed view, there is a sense in which revelation is not completed until it begins subject- becomes subjective by the Spirit's work. So we're, n- we're not saying that there's nothing subjective about the uh, experience that we have with the truth. It's, it's just that the truth itself is not subjective to be received by us through a particular feeling. It's that the truth is objective, it's outside of us, and by the work of the Holy Spirit, we come to understand that truth. And uh, it actually has a lot to do with uh, a a text that I preached on this past week. And so if you're interested in even seeing some more of how Christians would discern through this sort of a thing, I'd I'd encourage you to go check it out at at our website if that interests you at all. But Paul says in Colossians 1, 9, he says, And so from the day we've heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be, and he says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's a fascinating phrase. That word filled uh, means it's a divine passive. And so it means that God is the one who fills us with the knowledge of his will. So we don't fill ourselves with this knowledge, but that word knowledge is a compound word in the Greek that literally means uh, precise knowledge. It's a particular knowledge. It's not just anything goes, whatever you want to feel is what is what, what the truth is. It's that there is a precise way that we ought to understand God and that we ought to understand his will. 
And, uh, and, and yet, it is a spiritual wisdom and understanding, not a natural wisdom and understanding. And so from our perspective, God's Word is unchanging. His Word is always there. But until the Holy Spirit intervenes, we don't see it the way that we ought to see it. And the, one of the things I talked about in that sermon is that doesn't mean that you can't open your Bible and do exegesis as a non-Christian. You know, even a non-Christian could open the Bible and work through it and say, well, based on the historical grammatical research, this is what the author was trying to convey. A non-Christian can do that. And, uh, and so I brought in some Jonathan Edwards, who's another theologian who's exceptional, uh, that all Christians should read. But uh, Edwards talks about the distinction between spiritual wisdom and understanding and natural wisdom and understanding is primarily that when when the Spirit illumines your heart, you see the glory of it. You see the beauty of it. You see the, the glory of the God who is being revealed, and it leads your heart to worship Him. And that being the distinction. But but you are worshiping him according to a precise knowledge is, uh, is the way that we understand this. It's what the Bible teaches, that we understand God with a precise knowledge, that he's given us this precise knowledge of himself in his word, and that the Spirit is the person, the Trinity, who illumines our hearts to glory in the truth and to lay hold of it and believe it and uh, and. Yeah. So right, I think Machen's example toward the beginning of his book is, if we were to study whether Athens had a democracy, right? That question would not depend on how any particular person felt about it. Yeah. Even if we're passionate for democracy, so let's say we get this wrong. Some scholar misreads texts, misreads the, the context, whatever, and says, "No, it's this form of government." How do you correct them? based on your changing passions or based on the evidence, right? Mm -hmm. And that is not to say we don't have a commitment to this or that system, right? It's just to say Christianity is something or understanding the Trinity, the Trinity is something. Yeah. And once again, the spirit illumines and, and you know, helps us see more than a fact, but not less than a fact. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it, it leads us to love the truth, yep. as can be understood even by the non-believer. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, but what, what you see in a, a modern view of Revelation, and this is LDSism in purity, is less care about what the text actually says and more of an emphasis placed on your subjective experience that's brought on by the text. And that's because from their view, epistemologically, I, I would say it leans heavily in a in a subjectivistic way of thinking. Postmodern, yes, where truth yeah. is in you, and whatever is true for you is what you need to lay hold of for your own good, and that's what you ought to live your life according to. Right, and uh, and so nobody really has a higher level of truth. And when it when when it comes down to it. What matters most is what you have personally experienced in your own personal revelations, your own personal impressions and things of that nature. And we, and we, we may even touch on some of that as we get into this lesson again because of uh, a video that you yeah. shared with me that yeah. was uh, an interview of uh, your pastor, Jason Wallace, interviewing an LDS couple 
it was a that is an African American couple, yeah. and he interviewed them like nine years ago when the LDS Church released a statement. Race and the priesthood. On yep, race and the priesthood, and he was asking them how they deal with some of these things, and that's what we're going to get into. We're going to talk a lot about race, right? And how Sky, they get into Skyler it. has a lot uh, prepared on that today that we'll get to hear from, but just to see how they would work around that. It was like, well, if Brigham Young said this or that, if all the prophets before said this or that, it doesn't really matter to me because I got my own personal revelation saying that the church was true and that I didn't have to believe that. Right. You know, so it's like you can just undermine anything that the prophet says, and you can undermine any revelation that is given from the church yeah. by way of your own personal revelation. Yeah. And I know, like, of course, last October... I uh, can't remember one of the 12 um, in, in uh, general conference came out and said the prof- the revelation of the prophet always trumps your personal revelation. But I just wonder how much the street level LDS person actually believes that and lives that out. Well, if they agree, yes. Yeah. And if they agree, the person who doesn't agree, yes. But yeah. if they don't agree with what he says, then they won't be bullied the same way they will bully other people with the quotes they prefer over the quotes they don't. Yeah, and and notice, no matter what, whether it's early Mormonism, middle Mormonism, modern Mormonism, recent postmodern Mormonism, the text is never an end in itself. It's a means to be used, whether that's for individual enlightenment or social activism. Yep, and that that this is a text that's being appropriated to use to find precedent to somehow alleviate the tension you just described. Yep. Okay, so that's all relevant to what we're talking about today because as we start to look at the rest of the manual, it's very simple in one sense. They only highlight Acts 10 pretty much. In the first section, they highlight Acts 10, Acts 11, 1 to 18, and Acts 15, 1 to 25, which are all passages having to do with the Gentile inclusion into yeah. the church. Yeah. And so you can see that they're taking the early church working through the Gentile inclusion and God giving true revelation <laughs> to the church uh, on how they ought to be dealing with that. They're taking that and they're going to use it for for their purposes here. And you'll see that. So yeah. the subtitle under the first section, which highlights Acts 10, 11, and 15, says, Heavenly Father teaches us line upon line through revelation. And the idea that they're going after in that line upon line is one line at a time yep. through Revelation. Yep. So just listen to this whole section. I'm going to read it. Some class members might have misconceptions about the process of receiving Revelation. Process, not event. That's right. It may help them to discuss how Revelation came to Peter and how they can move forward doubting nothing, as it says in Acts 10.20 when revelation seems incomplete or unclear. Consider drawing a line on the board and writing at one end of the line, the gospel is to be preached to the Gentiles. As a class, review Acts 10 and 11, 1 to 18, and then add points on the line that show how the Lord revealed to Peter step by step that the time had come to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. For instance, you might start with the point labeled Cornelius Olivision, or even start with the Savior's commands to his disciples to teach all the nations in Matthew 28, 19. What can we learn about Revelation from Peter's experience? What do Nephi's teaching about Revelation in 2 Nephi 28.30 and the teachings from Elder David A. Bednar in additional resources add 
to your understanding. And then they go on in this same section. Again, this is a really long section. This is what they want to focus on this week. You might study instances in the scriptures in which the Lord taught people line upon line. And then they go and ask a question after saying to read a bunch of things from the Book of Mormon. They say, what other examples can class members think of in which people received spiritual guidance here a little and then there a little? Why might the Lord sometimes choose to reveal things in this way rather than giving us answers all at once? So do you see what they're doing? Yeah. They're, they're starting to directly relate the way that God gave revelation in the scriptures to the way that they personally still receive revelation today. But then they turn it away from the personal revelation to the issues in the church in this last section under all this all the same subsection here. Sometimes members have questions or concerns about changes in the policies and programs in the church. It might help them to discuss how the revelation to begin preaching the gospel to the Gentiles replaced the Lord's earlier instructions to his disciples. You could show the video of the Jerusalem conference. How might class members respond to someone in Peter's day who disagreed with Peter's direction because it contradicted earlier practices? How can the revelation in Acts 10 help us heed the Lord's continuing revelation through his prophet? There you have it. Yeah, and, and notice the title of the lesson. Now you hear it in a different light, right? The word of God grew and multiplied. Yep. And the text is talking about the gospel spreading and, right, Christianity growing. That's right. Here they mean, no, you're understanding <laughs> doctrines changing as you learn line upon line. That's how they mean it. That's so right. talk about, you know, uh, phrase shopping. Yep, yep. And then they relate that directly to the uh, changes in the policies and programs in the church. And so that's where we're going to sit for the majority of this. And Skylar, I'm just going to turn it over to you to kind of fill out some of the history of how the LDS church has maybe used this, this particular verse to justify some of the doctrinal changes that they've made throughout their history. Yes. And it's hard to know where to start because, I mean, everybody, it's so funny how they, they they do say it in the seminary manual at the very bottom of Acts 10, part one. They spend two days on this where they say, what similarities does Peter's vision have to the revelation to extend the priesthood to all worthy male church members? And so every it's so funny. We reading, everybody hearing, I bet every class in the church knew exactly what this was talking about and they never say what they're talking about. Yeah. Which is the priesthood and temple ban for black people. Yep. That's what this is about. And they don't just come out and say it. Instead, they want to make it about how complicated the process of receiving revelation is and all of that. So this is how they're trying to project the model they see as sustainable. Mm Mm-hmm. Onto the text. Um, David Ridges does this as well. So I noticed this thanks to a friend. A friend actually asked me, what's his interpretation of this? And I can't believe I missed this. And But they bring it up here, right? Where he says, you could start with the Great Commission in Matthew 28. David Ridges talks about this as a major change in policy. Major change in policy. And... Um, it's a strong statement that all must have the opportunity to hear and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. He then goes on to say, Remember that the Jews considered themselves to be superior in status to all other people in the sight of God because they were the direct descendants of Abraham. Notice, they considered themselves 
So he's relegating the Jew-Gentile distinction to just tradition and how they consider themselves. Mm. Jesus now instructs a clear, it's a clear reminder to these apostles that their cultural background must be discarded. Imagine how all, if we were speaking to a room of your professors. Oh, yeah. Cultural background must be discarded. In favor of the true doctrine that all souls are of equal worth in the sight of God. And he cites DNC 1810. They do the same thing in the seminary manual, where it's it's about how the, this vision is helping Peter better understand how Heavenly Father feels about all his children. Now, um, in, there's more, but let me let me say, if this was so clear from Acts 10 and the Great Commission, why did the LDS Church have their policy till 1978? Yeah. Right? I mean, what about that? If this is an old revelation, why is it so new for them? Mm-hmm. And, of course, the way they do it all the time is always this kind of on the edges, legally worded, never to disavow or scapegoat Brigham Young as if it's just Brigham Young that taught this. Now, it is true early Mormonism was a mixed bag. Right, Joseph Smith can be quoted on either side. The fact of the matter is, though, the, cha- the, the changing of skin as a curse of God is in the Book of Mormon. So it goes back to the very beginning of Mormonism mm-hmm. in Joseph Smith. And, and by the way, for those who want to see the broader context of that, there's a great book called The, um, the Mound Builder Myth, or The Myth of the Mound Builder, uh, by Jason Colavito. You'll see the context in which the Book of Mormon is speaking. Um, and this kind of rationalization that the Native Americans couldn't have built all these structures. Therefore, there must have been a white race here before Wow! that the brown people annihilated. I mean, there were presidents in the United States that relied on this to justify expansionism. Yeah. So um, it, once again, it fits its context perfectly. But, the, you know, people who like Joseph Smith are going to say, well, look at his run for president. Look at this one verse in the Book of Mormon that says all are like unto God. And forget Second Nephi 5, Alma 3, other places, or the Book of Abraham that takes this curse of Ham stuff, which we'll get to. And, and they're ta- he's taking interpretations around him, and he's putting them into Scripture that they say is equal to the Bible. Mm-hmm. Rather than... Right? Um, so we, what's weird is we have Joseph Smith extending the priesthood to Elijah Abel and a couple others. It's debated. I don't know the number that historians agree on now. But yeah. we do have one quote from Brigham Young that knows of a black priesthood holder in an in affirming way, which is really weird, and that something changes. Mm-hmm. And this is when he starts to speak as a prophet. In fact, he even says, if no other prophet before, I will speak of, of this. And he'll say that the mark of Cain is the flat nose, black skin. He'll say interracial marriage violates the law of God, eternal, like the eternal law of God. Um, And so what do you do with that? Um, Was he reading Acts 10? That's what I want to say to a lot of these people. It's like, you're, I know what you're doing here in this retreat into ambiguity saying how complicated it is. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't complicated. Brigham Young said why it was. Yeah. And, every, and, and yeah. Br- Brigham Young, of course, spoke these things in general conference. Right. And made very clear 
in the quotes that we even have from him, that he was speaking for God. Yes. That this was revelation, the, these things regarding the the African race, as as he would have put it. Yes. Um, that, that they are subpar, that they, they there's a reason they don't have the priesthood, um, using language that's quite inflammatory and extremely racist. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you have to understand that if Brigham Young says that he, this is revelation from God and he's speaking for God, then the direct connection there is the LDS God is a racist God. Um, mm-hmm. At least he was back in that right. time. Uh, so how, how do you deal with that if you're LDS? Right. And, you know, I'll put some links. Uh, the Brigham quotes are fairly famous. I'll put links to them in the show notes if if someone's unfamiliar. But, I mean, he, he says he's speaking as a prophet. He says if he gives a sermon and gets to proofread it, it's as good as Scripture. That's what we're dealing with is, is quotes like those. He'll say things like, this will always be so. He'll say the priesthood, they'll be, they will not have a chance for the priesthood until everybody else has the blessings of it first. So they have to kind of play word games with that. Um, it, like you said, he defined what the mark was of Cain. And so here, here's the thing, though, is the, the, now they're trying to say that was a policy and not, um, and not doctrine. And not doctrine. Right. And that's what, what this is. It's like the, that's why they make it about you know, policies and programs. Yep. It was like, no, this was doctrinal. So uh, this is a little bit longer one. I'm, I'm not going to go into a ton of quotes, but th- I think this will get the point across. This was a first presidency statement. Okay, once again, they want to say it's Brigham Young, and we don't know why. It's not just Brigham Young. It's everyone after. That's right. Um, here's a first presidency statement. The uh, George A. Smith is president, and then his counselors are J. Reuben Clark and David O. McKay. This is August 17th, 1949. I'm just going to read this. Um, two sections. Just a little after Brigham Young. Uh, yeah, 1949. <laughs> yeah. 1949. Um, so 100 years later. <laughs> right. The attitude of the church with reference to Negroes remains, remains as it always stood. It is not a matter of the declaration of a policy, but a direct commandment from the Lord, on which is founded the doctrine of the church from the days of its organization to the effect that Negroes may become members of the church, but that they are not entitled to the priesthood at the present time. Remember, the 20, I think it was 13 or 14 statement, race and the priesthood, disavows theories. This isn't. In fact, they'll say that was policy. No, this, they say right here, doctrine, first presidency of the church, and then they go on. The position of the church of the church regarding the Negro may be understood when another doctrine of the church is kept in mind, namely that the conduct of spirits in the premortal existence has some determining effect upon the conditions and circumstances under which these spirits take spirits take on mortality. And that while the details of this principle have not been made known, the mortality is a privilege that is given to those who maintain their first estate. Um, we haven't gone to estates yet. We'll let that sometime, but pre-mortal, and then we're in the second estate here in mortality. And that the worth of the privilege is so great that spirits are willing to come to earth and take on bodies no matter what the handicap may be as to the bodies they are to secure. Yeah. And that among the handicaps, failure of the right to enjoy in mortality the blessings of the priesthood is a handicap which spirits are willing to assume in order that they might come to earth. Under this principle, there is no injustice whatsoever. 
no injustice whatsoever involved in this deprivation as to the holding of the priesthood by the Negroes. David O. McKay, who was in this letter, he, he even says, this seeming discrimination by the church toward the Negro is not something which originated with man, but goes back into the beginning with God, extending back to man's preexistent state. So just two examples, I'll put the uh, you know citations in the show notes. Why do I say this? Well, I, I have more, a lot more here, but it's just kind of come to mind that, uh, um, and especially based on a conversation with a dear friend out there, that he thinks a lot of our criticisms are cultural, right? not doctrinal. And, and so that's a good question though, right? Um, how much, and I have made cultural points, yeah. right? But this is doctrinal. Yep, and and here's the thing. Um, I've I've got a book here on the the biblical justification of American slavery. It's one of the worst books I've ever read in terms of um, how tragic it is. Yeah, how this curse of ham stuff. It is not just a Mormon thing. That's Racism right. is not just a Mormon thing. And I, I'm struck by this quote. I don't know who first said it. That um, some um, a black member of the LDS church was asked, why join this church with the obvious racism? And he said, well, if I'm going to find a church without racism, there wouldn't be a church to join. That's that's true. Yeah, um, Racism has been a huge issue, even among Christians, and they have used the Bible to justify it, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, Which, given the fact that the LDS faith grew up in uh, 18th century America— Right. Uh, some of the arguments that they would have been using would have been borrowed arguments from things that evangelical Christians were saying. Yes. With the curse of ham stuff. Mm-hmm. And so we're not squirming out of this as something that has been a problem in our history. Yeah. What we're trying to go after is the root of it. Exactly. How, how do you get out of it? Mm-hmm. Um, are, are we trying to say that something changed in our doctrine and that's why we are no longer racist? There's a lot of, by the way, this is just a big topic to cover. Um, yeah, we'll cover it again. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot that could be said here, even from a, a credo-Christian perspective. But um, what we are trying to, I think, hone in on is when we say that there was a problem with some of the things that were happening in the church with the defense of racism— what we're saying is those Christians were misunderstanding the doctrine that is objectively in the Bible, and their arguments had no objective basis to it. And if they would have done right exegesis, as many, many Christians were, yeah, they would have come to the right conclusions. And what we would actually argue is even in American history, it's some of these biblical scholars and pastors who led the way on the West becoming one of the first societies in the history of the world that we know of to outlaw slavery. Yeah. Uh, This was built on the backs of Christian ethics that was coming from a right interpretation of the Bible. There were Christians who were misunderstanding and misinterpreting the Bible, but the problem was with their interpretation of the truth that was there. The problem was not with the truth itself. Exactly. Very different from what any LDS person could ever try to claim, because if their claim is that revelation continues into this day, that means that God still speaks absolutely today. 
And when he speaks, his word is binding. It's from God. And so the, the prophet speaks for God. And when the prophet speaks and makes clear that this is doctrine, what he's saying is this is a word from God. And so if you're LDS, you have to grapple with the fact that your God said those things. Yeah. Right? Yes. And and what what is doctrine if not that? Exactly. First presidency letters, conference talks, presidents of the church, several. I mean, it, the, the, the amount of evidence is overwhelming. I mean, it's, it's not close. Even Kimball, who's supposed to be this racial progressive in the mind of people who are trying to stay in this church and see it in the best light possible. Look at some of his quotes on Native Americans becoming white as they become loyal to the gospel, right? Once again, skin meant skin. I know there's an interpreter apology. There's an, attempt, there's an attempt to metaphor, make metaphor what was literal yeah. <laughs> in the Book of Mormon's understanding up to this point. Kimball thought Native Americans would become white, Joseph Smith sent missionaries to the Native Americans, said even take wives among them so they would become more white. Remember, Jesus is a white man. If God is a man, you want to become more like Jesus, right? you got to become white. And there are even stories out there of people, people of color who are LDS, who tried to not get too tan, who tried to, right? I mean, this is not fake. This is the lived experience of people. Now, it is true that there is lived experience of people who have experienced racism in the Christian church in America. Mm-hmm. Um, elsewhere, I'm sure as well. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to this context. You know, I just finished a book on the Neelands in the, uh, in the Presbyterian Church in Memphis. And um, it, it's tragic. It's absolutely tragic to see sin come through in that way. Mm-hmm. But once again, that is cultural. They were misreading the text. Like, for example, you know, Ham's not cursed in the text. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's Canaan. Um, and, and so like, we can use the text to say, no, they're completely misreading it. They're completely misappropriating it. It's a matter of interpretation based on a standard that we do affirm is unchanging. Yeah. Here, they are treating ambiguous what isn't selectively. Brigham Young was not ambiguous. The first presidency here was not ambiguous. David O. McKay was not ambiguous. They were clear as to what they meant and clear as to what the implications were, yep. both for white skin and for different colors yeah right brown be they black brown whatever yeah the way that of course modern lds people will typically try to deal with this is as we've already mentioned uh they they're either going to retreat into saying that these were just policies they weren't doctrine we've already talked about that but the other option is they're going to say yeah it was just uh the prophets are fallible yeah They, they make mistakes um, even Joseph Smith, of course, said that uh, not every prophecy is from God, that uh, you can say prophecies that are from God, you can say the prophecies that are from man, and then there's other prophecies that are straight from the pit of hell. And, uh, and of course, what we want to do is continue to hold LDS people accountable to their own system. Yeah. If you're going to make those arguments, work out the implications of those arguments. That means yeah. that you can trust your profit 33% of the time, maybe. And who gets to choose that 33%? Right, exactly. Once again, it just gets weaponized by what you agree with already. Yeah. So so the question yeah. then becomes, how do you know what is true? Right. Um, and that's the bigger issue that's going on here with, uh, with the LDS view of revelation. So our view is that God's revelation is absolute. 
mm-hmm. that his revelation is unchanging, that he is giving revelation through the overflow of his character and his nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's revealing himself in history to people in, uh, in language that we can, of course, understand. But he is an unchanging God. He's immutable. He isn't manipulative. He isn't able to be manipulated. And, uh, and so what he says is final. Yeah. And so when we look at uh, Acts 10 and 11, the way that the LDS curriculum is trying to bend these texts to say, well, don't you see things change, you know, and things change in our religion and things change back in the early church day. What we would point to is God's, standard and revelation didn't change. No, His revelation has been progressive, but you can look, and this is what all of the New Testament authors were doing, look back at the Old Testament and see that this has been the unchanging, unfolding plan of God yes. ever since the beginning of time. He's yeah. not going back. He's not saying, well, we're going to go to plan B and include the Gentiles. No, replete in the Old Testament is a looking forward to this yeah. Gentile inclusion that's going to occur when the, when the new covenant arrives, which is inaugurated by the coming right. of Jesus himself, uh, who is uh, the, the revelation of God as well, who's, who brings the, the word of God to the people of God so that we can know him and what he's doing in the world. And so for us, God's not changing here. And so for them to equate what they see happening in the text here to the changes that have happened in their doctrine throughout the history of their church is groundless. Yes. It has it has nothing to stand on. Right. And it's once again, I it, and it, notice how even the quote they include, which I, I didn't get to, they include this quote from Nelson. <sighs> Let me just read this quote. Let God prevail is the talk in 2020. Each of us has a divine potential because each is a child of God. We know what that means. Each is equal in his eyes. The implications of this truth are profound. Brothers and sisters, please listen carefully to what I am about to say. God does not love one race more than another. His doctrine on this matter is clear. He invites all to come into him. Black and white, bond and free, male and female, 2 Nephi 26.33. Once again, compare that with 2 Nephi 5.21, Alma 3.6-9. You'll see that it can be quoted either way. I assure you that your standing before God is not determined by the color of your skin. Once again, listen, the first presidency disagreed, not even um, 70 years ago, or about 70 years ago. Uh, favor or disfavor with God is dependent upon your devotion to God and his commandments and not the color of your skin. And you notice when I pointed this quote out immediately that that's a contradiction. If he loves each equally, do each equally devote themselves to the commandments? So that that doesn't even work. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because if you follow the commandments more, he must love you more, right? So uh, that there's a contradiction even in that. But once again, notice what he doesn't say. <laughs> He doesn't acknowledge the past teachings. He doesn't say, we've been teaching something different the whole time. This is called gaslighting. (laughs) This is called obfuscation. This is a retreat into ambiguity. That's why they have to make Revelation a process. Rather than Brigham Young saying, hey, this is how it is. They have to say Revelation seems incomplete. Well, okay, so you just, you could say that about anything. Yep. 
or unclear. They weren't unclear. Yeah. I've got a book, uh, just to mention it, because I brought two really old books. Don't have time to go into them, but sometime we'll, we'll approach this more clearly. I, The Church and the Negro by John L. Lund. And just inside the cover, there is no church in existence today that can do more for the Negro than the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, often referred to as the Mormon Church. And it goes through it. It's pretty clear. It's citing prophets and scriptures and first presidency letters. And and um, let me read the description of this author. A native Olympia of Olympia, Washington, graduate of BYU, has long been interested in the Negro question. While serving a mission for the LDS Church in Mexico, it was his privilege to baptize several Negroes into the church. He's lectured, traveled extensively in the Western states discussing the issue of the Negro in the Mormon church. And has also been employed by the Brigham Young University Education Week program as a lecturer on religious topics. For um, for the past few years, the author has been a religious instructor for the Department of Seminaries and Institutions for the Mormon Church. Right. So, 1967, fifth printing, 1970 is the copy I have. Another book I've got that's also very popular and kind of the. It, it, yeah, to be clear, this is a niche, but it is a real niche that's out there. Um, Gerald Newquist, Prophets, Principles, and National Survival. And um, this book, copyright 1964, I've got a copy of the seventh printing, 1971, has a whole section um, called Mormonism and the Negro. Mark of Cain, Abolitionist Condemned, Negro Problem, Always a State Matter. Civil rights, an extension of federal power. Yep, Negro entitled to rights, so they acknowledge some sense of equality, but mixing of race is forbidden. So it's, once again, this this book, the Newquist Group, you know, still exists. I I, uh, I guess if I should go in, I attended a few years with it. You know, there's a lot of John Birchers, a lot of believing LDS that go here. Uh, Jason Chaffetz spoke one of the years I went, who's a congressman. Um, I mean, this this stuff is still out there. And notice the ambiguity. They take advantage of the ambiguity. They'll say things like, the Declaration didn't say the past prophets were wrong. They find some way to harmonize it another way. They'll see it as a sign of apostasy, um, but not enough of an apostasy to leave kind of a thing. Um, they weren't faithful enough to that revelation. So they'll use the same model of revelation and line upon line and say, well, because we weren't faithful to it, we have less now. Yeah. And they'll stay in the church. Mm-hmm. This is a huge issue. I mean, it's this is not just a gotcha issue. The more you look at it, the more you see how deep this thing goes. And it, I mean, all the paintings, you'll see it. Native Americans or so, you know, Lamanites, whatever, brown skin. The righteous white skin, you know, and they'll point to the one exception, but it's an exception that proves the rule. It's yeah. like Samuel the Lamanite or something. And I, it's, I don't know how else it could be seen but doctrinal rather than cultural. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes there's they'll use culture as a reason for it. So here's one that doesn't get much attention, but for the Latinas and Latinos out there, I want to say this one. So there was an apostle, Moses Thatcher, who also went to Mexico. And he said um, that Mexicans had become gross, dark, and dull. Mm. Gross, dark, and dull. Why? 
it's not their fault. It's the Roman Catholic Church's fault. You know, because what color were they before Columbus? I, I, I don't know. But, um, and then, of course, he interprets, you know, the sign of the cross is like sign of the beast or whatever. This, this is a huge issue. Yeah. It's a huge issue. And, and once again, the framing, this is what I want the listener to see, and I know I'm repeating myself here, but this is, this is the key. Have there been Christian races? Yes. Is it cultural or is it doctrinal? What in the creeds, for example, just as a litmus test, what in the creeds has there is there a place to say there's two standards based on skin color? They're not there. Yep. They're not there. Um, and I just I hope the listener hears that. That this is an issue. And and by the way, one more pet peeve. And then I don't know for the remaining time where you want to go because I've got a gazillion things in my head right now. Talking about race does not mean you're woke. Talking about race does not mean you're woke. Can I say that? <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, I just think there has been a gross overreaction to overreactions elsewhere, right? And I just think the discourse on this subject um, has been uh, unhelpful in many ways by even, well, people trying to be faithful to the faith. Right, and, and seeing this as a distraction. No, this is not just a distraction. When churches were segregated, I mean, even Reformed churches, it's so sad to hear about the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa, for example, using Genesis 9 through 11 to defend uh, apartheid. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, this is real. Yep. We got to deal with it, but based on the Bible. Yeah, and just, just to not smear the Christian tradition and blame slavery and racism on Christianity yeah, yeah, absolutely. as is yeah. often what's what occurring mm-hmm. uh, elsewhere. all the way back into the 300s AD. Uh, one of the church fathers, Gregory of Nyssa started to ferociously attack the institution of slavery on the basis of Christian ethics. Mm-hmm. And that was an argument from the Bible, a doctrinal argument he was making yeah. on the evil of slavery yeah. Um. In 300 AD. Yes. And so, the, before that, there's like hardly anyone who's questioning slavery as an institution. If anyone, I don't know of anyone else right. in history that's questioning whether or not this is ethical. Mm-hmm. Um. It was just what was there, and of course, that that wasn't a. Sla- we can go into the difference of of that. That wasn't a slavery based on on skin color, not all the time, anyways. But, um. In any case, it's been it's been the right exegesis of our scriptures and how God has revealed Himself in the Bible that has led to those battles against slavery, against institutionalized racism that the church stands upon and ought to stand upon, and that Christians tragically in the past have not stood upon. But right. you know, the reality is every generation of Christians is going to have gaps in our knowledge. Uh, of God that's going to lead us to believe wrongly mm-hmm. about cultural matters. But the problem, again, is that we are not understanding the Bible rightly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a problem with the Bible. It's not the problem with it's not a problem with the revelation that has come from God. Mm-hmm. And that's the distinction that we're drawing between how we deal with these issues from a credo Christian perspective versus what the LDS faith has to deal with in it. Mm-hmm. It's a mess. 
It is. I, I don't know what you do. I mean, and, and what you do is ultimately you end up retracting your entire theory of knowledge into a subjectivism because what else can you do? You know, it, it's a, uh, you, you can no longer stand on the ground that there is an objective God who's revealing, revealing himself. Um, you've got to retreat into a subjective way of knowing um, right. because the standard that you once tried to have has been shown to be groundless. Yeah. And to yeah. call out their treatment of the text once again, if this was revealed in Acts 10 through 15, why was there ever an issue in 1830 yeah. for the LDS church? Yep. Uh, it shows, once again, they're not reading these texts to learn from them. They're reading them for opportunities to make them a means of activism, thus encouraging a culture of doing so, even among the prophets. Yep. Uh, and I mean, uh, you've, I'm sure you've seen this on social media. You know, it's like, they're changing on this. And they'll say, no, there was this Oaks talk. And they're changing on that. No, there was this talk. And it's always these drive-by quotes deliberately worded in an ambiguous way and trying to give red meat to all sides. Here's one for the right. Here's one for the left. Here's one for the Nucleus group. Here's one for the progressives that treat the church like their civil rights program. And um, once again, at the end of the day, it, it becomes just this civil war on, yeah, so a building with no foundation. That's right. And I, I just want to push LDS people toward what uh, philosophers would call a justification for knowledge. Yeah. You've got to be able to justify your knowledge. You've got to be able to, you got to be able to show how you know what you know. And uh, what means are you going to do that with as an LDS person? Yeah. If the justification for your knowledge is revelation from the prophets, but then you've got this kind of stuff going on? Yeah. What kind of justification is that? That's a very weak justification. It is. For, for your knowledge. And I think that's why it just goes into subjectivism. But then that has huge issues because subjectivism is essentially saying you can't know anything with absolute certainty at all. Mm -hmm. What kind of way is that to live? Right. You know, then you become the absolute standard yourself and everyone turns inward towards self and uh, what kind of world is that going to build, you know? Right. Uh, and then you, then you can start asking some of the bigger ethical questions that go along with that way of thinking. Right. Um, if it's a free-for-all, then there is no moral standard. There is no absolute. There, right. there is nothing on which you can stand. And yet in the context of even saying their impressions are from the Lord, and yet you have people in the same classroom that are receiving contradictory impressions. Uh, once again, I, I, I was told once um, that by someone who saw some of the historical issues in the LDS church that I would never leave unless I saw something better, right? And honestly, going through this year has only reminded me, this is not just prejudice. This is going lesson by lesson and just seeing how in a context of mostly shallow stuff, it's not said to be rude. I mean, it really is. How scary <laughs> they smuggle in this. Some of the old truth still in there. What could what could be worse? I mean, honestly, you have hierarchy without accountability. You have prophets without prophecies anymore. You have revelations that don't mean anything, can contradict each other. You just pick the ones you like and weaponize them against the LDS of the po other political party. You have 
this sense of you're the only true church, and yet when it comes to what was actually revealed in the beginning, they can't point to anything. They want to say something was restored, but it's always this ongoing thing, so they're not held accountable for what that actually entailed even five years ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago. And I just would, my plea would be, you know, Christians, yeah, we have our differences in interpretation, but, you know, you and I can both look at the Bible, say that's the standard, and debate from there. And there's a standard apart from us and over both of us by which we see whether something cultural is sneaking into our practice, into our views, a prejudice, a sinful prejudice right. in our hearts is corrupting the messiness that is the church, That's like right. with the segregated churches. Yep, there, there is an absolute standard by yes. which we can live. 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty three: For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. We'll see you next time, Acts 16 to 21. Thanks for listening.